people need ordering principles. Hello, it's Sam here. Sorry for interrupting, but we have got a book sale going on at the moment. That's right, our post-internet far right book is now available for pre-order. There's a link in the show notes. We need a certain number of pre-sales by the end of the month. That's the end of June 2021 in order to get the book published. So by the middle of this year, we must have £5,200. We're over a quarter of the way there already. So it's going really well. But if you want to pitch in, if you want to get some of our takes in more systematic form and also in more written down form, then you can go over to the crowdfunder page, which is in the show notes and please 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 buy a book i've detained you from andreas malm and lise benoit long enough here it is 12 rules hello welcome to 12 rules for what my name is sam i am joined by alex hello and we are really happy and slightly intimidated to be joined by andreas malm and Lise Benoit. Um, Andreas is one of the uh, leading Marxist thinkers in the world today and also associate professor at uh, Lund University. Um, Lise is an uh, independent researcher who is a graduate of Lund University's human ecology program as well. Um, and in the future, um, also one of the foremost Marxist thinkers uh, in the world. <laughs> but... <laughs> not yet. Not yet, not yet, not yet. <laughs> so we are here to talk about um, uh, White Skin Black Fuel, which is a new book out from Verso with Andreas and the Zetgen Collective. So maybe it's just be possible to kind of introduce what is the Zetgen Collective? Uh, yes, yeah, so the collective was born around the human ecology division at Lund University, kind of uh, introduced by Andreas, if I'm not wrong. And uh, yeah, and uh, it started from the, the constatation that um, far parties were rising all around the world. And uh, that the climate crisis was also accelerating and that the, most of the far right was actually denying uh, climate change. And um, so it started um, by the willingness to look into this intersection. What does it mean and what do they say about climate, climate politics? What are their climate politics or non-climate politics or anti-climate politics? And uh, yeah, what does it mean? What do we do about it? And uh, yeah, we're a group of uh, international people, student researchers, independent um, yeah, researchers affiliated at universities or not volunteering for most of us. And um, we, yeah, the, the fact that we are international allowed us to do research on uh, 13 different European countries plus Brazil and the US. And uh, so I guess this is our, our key asset, our language skills and uh, yeah, being, both men and women having different backgrounds, different interests, and um, we're gathering forces together. I was going to ask what the um, what the benefits of writing in a collective were, but obviously you've just uh, kind of said a few of them. What are, what what are the kind of challenges of? Um, I mean, we we've been we found it hard. I found it hard writing with a co-writer on you know just two people. How 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 has it been writing in such such a big collective? Well, I, 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 to be honest, the way it's, it worked for this book was that everyone did research and, and uh, wrote papers on their countries of interest and essentially submitted it to me. I proce processed these pieces and tried to turn it into coherent text because we, we, we wanted to avoid an anthology or, a, you know, yeah, we wanted one voice. 
And then after I had turned it into uh, a text, I, I would submit, submit it back to the collective for everyone to suggest uh, amendments and changes. And there would be a back and forth process. And this uh, happened several times because we, uh, yeah, we, we made one major thorough revision of the manuscript and we had to write a postscript to take account of developments last year and things like that. So it's been a, an intense collective process, but uh, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's the way it's worked. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, so I was wondering, if, I mean, the, the book is called White Skin, Black Fuel which is a very provocative title. Uh, I am, I consider myself provoked by this title. But before we get to the title, I wonder if we could just go through what the overall thesis of the book is. So as you said, there's a kind of a, a confluence of um, denialism and far-right politics. And these both seem to have um, arisen at the same time, or rather the climate crisis has accelerated and the far-right has accelerated in roughly the same way. In fact, you might even think of them as having two kind of exponential graphs, right? Um, both kind of terrifying, leading towards a kind of terrifying um, future. I wonder if you could outline what the major danger that the far right poses to the solution to climate change is in your story, because there have been different ways of framing this. I think lots of people have focused on what's called eco-fascism, which in some ways is the opposite thing to what you're focusing on, right? It's the attempt to use the climate crisis in order to um, put forward more kind of disciplinary or authoritarian measures, um, as opposed to just denying it outright. So I wonder if you could just describe what is the major danger that the far right poses to our engagement with climate change in the book? Well, well I would say that uh, our book is intentionally uh, complex and hard to uh, some summarize in one thesis, but if 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 if, if we're going to try to do that, I would say that the the general role of the far right in the climate crisis appears to be to defend privileges under threat, and this can take several different uh, appearances. One being defending fossil fuels and their technologies and uh, rejecting anything uh, that appears to be climate politics and denying the problem. But it can also be the kind of green nationalist or if you like eco-fascist version of it, which, uh, which is perhaps more about defending uh, privileges uh, as against, uh, for instance, climate-induced migration or uh, various uh, crises brought about by climate impacts. Uh, so uh, yes, we focus on uh, on the danger of fossil fascism to use the subtitle, and on the far right that celebrates fossil fuels and affirms their, uh, the technologies uh, powered by them and denies the climate crisis because we see this as the predominant, still the predominant position on the far right, at least in the countries that we've looked at. So those certain European countries plus the US and Brazil. But we also spent some time on uh, on the green nationalism uh, uh, as an alternative articulation of far right politics in the climate crisis, uh, and not the least uh, on the case of, of uh, in the case of France, which is uh, uh, the, the, the special uh, field of expertise of Lise, so she can take over if, if she wants to add something there, or we can come back to it later. You start out with denialism and go through a kind of history of climate denialism. Um, what are the kind of some of the basic, um, I suppose, phases in which the climate denial um, block has gone through since the since the eighties? Yeah, well, uh, originally climate denial in the late eighties and early nineties was 
all but the consensus position from the capitalist class in the US and uh, large chunks of it, at least in Europe as well, with corporations setting up organizations like the Global Climate Coalition to try to sabotage uh, the UN negotiations and uh, um, uh, engaging in, in all out miscommunication, disinformation and attempts to, uh, to, to, to break down the emerging scientific consensus. Uh, but that phase came to an end around the years of the Kyoto Protocol. So in the mid, mid to late 90s, when um, many of these corporations ditched uh, the denialist uh, apparatus or whatever you like to call it and nominally recognized the climate crisis and paid lip service to it and started engaging in, in, in tactics more like greenwashing. Um, and then the denial still lingered on and some corporations, notably ExxonMobil, continued to bankroll this apparatus. Um, uh, uh, but the major shift, perhaps, that we are, of course, most interested in is when denial drifted into the far right as a politically organized current, uh, uh, as represented in, in certain parties and precedents. And uh, this seems to be the most politically successful phase of climate denial, because unlike in the uh, mid-90s um, or early 90s, uh, this type of climate denial represented by far-right parties has managed to exercise direct political power, notably through the Trump presidency and the Bolsonaro presidency, but also uh, through quite important uh, governments in Europe, such as the one in Poland, the one in Norway, key fossil fuel produce producing countries in Europe, as well as through political parties that haven't gained government power, but that have managed to influence uh, the political discourse in their countries. Uh, so uh, yeah, we divided into four, we divided climate denial into four phases, but the, 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 the really interesting process is the migration of climate denial from corporations in the uh, 1990s to uh, far-right political actors today. I think the specifically interesting thing about the kind of adoption of by the far right of denialism is the kind of taking out of the climate, taking climate out of like a debatable position within a, like a, lib, a liberal sphere of like yeah. the political discourse and that, that these parties like in Poland and Trump, the Trump administration are kind of immune to all the kind of arguments and pressure from scientists or pressure groups or charities and stuff. And I think that's what, in my opinion, gives it a certain potency that, uh, that it does that the corporate, the corporate kind of, uh, uh, corporate interests would um, like are much more kind of susceptible to that kind of general discourse. I think. I think the the anti-fascist left. I mean, I'm speaking kind of from personal experience. Um, tends to think of fire politics basically as quite kind of independent from capitalism at a large scale. So um, we understand, I think, far right movements, at least street movements, as kind of um, basically like throwbacks, kind of 
atavistic, weird, independent from capitalism. And they're this kind of strange thing that the centre-right parties uh, have to appease, right? So they shift to the right of immigration and they absorb that. I mean, that's a very British view, perhaps, because the Conservative Party has been absolutely amazing uh, over the last 40, 50 years at absorbing the far right and preventing it from developing in this autonomous thing. So the, the way, so, but the book gives a much stronger role for the far right, and it also gives a much stronger role for capital in the determination of the far right. And I think that's not something that uh, normally we think about. Um, so I'm wondering, and th- obviously this is something that people think about in, in Europe and it comes out of um, a debate between Miliband and Valencias and so on. Um, but the, uh, I guess the question of the determination of far right politics to a large extent by blocks of capital is a quite a novel idea. So I just wonder, could you explain that? How do you see not, it's not just a question of influence, right? It's not just a question of ideas being circulated. There is also a sense in which the politics of the far right is actually organized by and even decided by some sort of block of capital. And I wonder if you could just explore the dynamics of that attribution or that determination. My take on this would be that the classical Marxist analysis of the far right and of fascism is that these forces come to the fore only if at least factions of the dominant class uh, find it useful to uh, align with them and to invite them into power. And the uh, analysis of the contemporary far right has long been that indeed, as you say, it's um, uh, an atavistic phenomenon with no relation to dominant classes and hence it's doomed to impotence. Um, Our analysis uh, suggests that it's more complicated than that because uh, in a a wide range of cases, you can see very intimate relations between certain far-right formations and what we call in the book primitive fossil capital. So in in, in normal, uh, uh, ordinary language, the fossil fuel industry. Uh, And perhaps the most clear-cut cases of these of this alliance would be uh, the US, Norway, Poland, and Brazil. But in Brazil, it's also uh, a lot about the agri- agribusiness uh, section of the dominant class. And I don't think that we argue that these class, these, these dominant class fractions, factions determine the rise of the far right, but that the, the rise of the far right uh, in, in those countries and uh, potentially at least in quite a few others as well, uh, uh, is articulated in an alliance with those sections of of the dominant class. And it's when that alliance comes about that the far right becomes a really powerful force. As we saw in the the US over the past four years uh, up to the the Biden election, as we're seeing playing out uh, uh, still in Brazil, uh, and the, the what what when the far right is on the rise in certain countries uh, such as Spain, for instance, right now, or uh, or Germany, where the AfD seems to be doing pretty well again in the in the, in the polls, uh, this this alliance is uh, potentially realized in one way or another. And this doesn't mean that, for instance, in the German case, that coal companies such as RWE are actually funding the AFD, which I don't think is the case, 
but that the interests uh, align between a party such as the AFD and coal companies uh, in that country. And that structurally, this can, at a, at a certain moment, mean that the far right uh, can wield much more power than it would uh, uh, than would be the case if there were if there were no such uh, fusion of interests or uh, yeah correspondence of interests if that makes sense. Yeah, and I can just say a few things about uh, France. Um, I just want to say like even though we have this like green nationalism narrative that is spreading more and more and that there are many different groups and many different narratives within the spectrum of what is uh, forward environmentalism in France. Uh, when we look at parties such as uh, the Rassemblement National, uh, there is no need to break up, break with the status quo. They want they are not post-growth, like there are certain groups that are criti criti critical of growth and capitalism at large, but what we see with the Rassemblement National, and it's pretty clear with their uh, recent ecological program, uh, what they want is clearly written, uh, they want uh, national capitalism and to strength, strengthen uh, the, the capitalism within the French borders. They want to relocalize the economy, but it is they want to certain like French industries and um, French nuclear power uh, and power plants and um, also like military uh, facilities and so on. So in that sense, it's also very much defending uh, the, the, the status quo as it is. And um, we were talking earlier about defending like uh, privileges, like when privileges are threatened, and it is very much what fuels this green nationalism narrative, that I, and more on an identity level, um, that it is the French identity, whatever that means, is that, that is uh, being threatened in quotation mark as well, by um, immigrants and by different cultures coming in. And uh, yeah, so this is what they want to defend as well. Uh, I don't I just wonder if that happens in, in France uh, as well on a more heterogeneous level. I mean, so France is obviously the, the site of the what's called the European New Right. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the French version. Ah. Nouvelle droite. Yeah, right? like, Nouvelle droite. Uh, okay. So, so the, 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 <laughs> no. the, France is obviously the, the, the place where this begins, 1968 and so on. So I'm, and, and, and since then, there's been this, this uh, kind of reactionary counterculture that is fairly literary, Hélène um, de Benoit and so on, right? Um, so I'm kind of wondering, like, who has no connection with my family? Just saying. No, sure. Yeah, I was, I was gonna. I was. I was very deliberately not gonna. <laughs> I was wondering if there's a, um, if in particular in France, this kind of national capitalism, um, and I know that De Benoit supports like green growth, uh, degrowth rather, right? Like, and, and it's even been suggested that in France in particular, degrowth is a kind of a reactionary uh, like tendency. Do you think that the heterogeneity there? of groups outside of the Rassemblement National, do you think that heterogeneity allows for there to be an articulation of nature and the French people's relation to nature that is more detached from the dominance, the uh, determination, I shouldn't use that word, uh, the uh, dominance or the um, uh, influence of the fossil fuel industry? Or do you think it's just that France has lots of nuclear power? I mean, there's definitely an aspect of like that is different from like the US or Poland, for example, that France has no fossil fuels in the ground uh, as such, uh, not exploited anymore. And um, so like the national energy has become nuclear power. Uh, so this is what is now associated with like energy independence and so on. Um, I would say that uh, I'm not an Alain de Benoit specialist, but um, as I understand, he's been highly influenced by uh, romantic 
um, uh, writers from Germany uh, where there is a much developed uh, Nazi and uh, all right vision of what nature is and what ecology is. So he's been inspired by that. And, and I, I really see, oh, I, th I actually, I thought at the beginning that Alain de Benoit uh, was uh, one end of the spectrum with like this degrowth idea that he's supporting, even though within the Grèce and this like uh, metapolitical sphere, there were many different opinions regarding that. Um, and that Marine Le Pen was the much more electorable, <laughs> if it's a word, uh, supporting a, a um, national capitalism and, and so on. But um, it turns out that uh, those opinions are not incompatible. And I can take the example of uh, uh, the think tank that, uh, that organized like a yearly colloquium and it was last year. Um, this think tank called uh, Institut Iliad for like the preservation of the European civilization. Um, and uh, where actually Alain de Benoit was uh, talking there, but also Hervé Juvin, who is like Mr. Ecology at the Rassemblement National, and they had a lot of things to agree on. And um, if I, I don't know what else to say really on the, 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 the French case, but there is definitely a very strong metapolitical sphere. And uh, <laughs> this was the small focus on my of my thesis. So I definitely think that this was quite a, a massive channel to spread different types of views and different through different kinds of outlets and to develop different groups, radio channels, YouTube channels, think tanks, as I said, magazines and small local groups and so on. And um, yeah, and and I think there's also something to do with the history of France, which I, again, I'm not going to go into details because I'm not a specialist, but with like a lot of regional identities um, that needs that now re-emerging. And we can see that with the regional elections coming up in a couple of weeks, that uh, this is now the new fight waged by uh, 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 Rassemblement National list at the regional level. So I, I'm, yeah, there are different French specificities, I'm sure. On the on the on France, just staying on France for a second, it seems that um, going from like the early two thousands Front National all the way through to Rassemblement National now, there was this very clear shift from denialism and you know mocking of the very idea of climate changing or climate crisis into through that kind of new ecology movement and into like a like the Green National phase. How did this, specifically in France, how did this change happen? Because it, it seems like it seems to go along with like a wider shift within that particular party um, from Jean-Marie Le Pen and the kind of older guard through uh, to his daughter. Yeah, exactly. I think this is one of the main things: this uh, modernization of the party through being through putting the daughter at the at the. Uh, front stage, and uh, this de-diabolization strategy that they have undertaken uh, since uh, she arrived at the head of the party. And yeah, you're right, there was this uh, new ecology uh, organi organization uh, that was uh, affiliated with the Front National back, um, back then. And um, But honestly, this wasn't predominant <laughs> on the ecological scene. And um, it kind of uh, faded away, and there were also like yeah, internal disagreements and then uh, we could see in 2017 for the presidential election the topic coming back with this idea of patriotic ecology and the uh, economic protectionism and green protectionism and so on um, but the real comeback and I mean to say just 
just the rise of ecological concern uh, within the party was um, during the um, uh, European elections in 2019 with the arrival of this Hervé Juvin. Uh, and actually, I have a small thing to say about him regarding uh, national capitalism. He's this now this uh, the, the front person for this localist narrative that they are trying to promote. At the same time, he is uh, he has uh, shares at uh, within multinational companies such as Total, Amazon, and uh, Air Liquide, and all these uh, big companies. And uh, yeah. So that is just a funny story. And uh, he is happy to defend himself regarding that, but it's interesting, I think. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway, so he arrived at the, and became this like uh, writer and like more in, giving more intellectual sub substance to the, to the fart, to the ecological narrative of the Rassemblement National. And uh, he also brought about this very identitarian ecology and through this idea of localism and so on, which is about preserving identities connected to the territory, connected to the land. And um, yeah, so he, this is thanks to him that now this is being uh, put to the, to the foreground. And in, uh, at the beginning of the year, uh, him and another person, Andrea Kotarak, um, they created this localist movement and uh, with the spreading this localist manifesto. And um, yeah, now they are like, campaigning for their regional election, as I said, where they talk as much about ecology and anti-wind power uh, stuff, but also against Islam, obviously. And uh, the, the manifesto, I recommend to read it. It's quite uh, interesting. Yeah, in favor of ecology, but they have a really strong um, anti-wind power uh, position because, uh, well, they say that it's not efficient, that it's a lot of money spent. But this is the main argument is that it destroys this cultural landscape and the beauty of nature and that it doesn't work. And that it's just an argument um, to take down uh, nuclear power, which is our national energy. Um, yeah, I was wondering if, if, if maybe that, that, that's the missing link here um, between the states of denial and the states of what look like on the surface, something like acceptance. So not full acceptance in the way that we would understand, you know, you, we must decarbonize the economy, we have to switch from fossil fuels away, and so on, these kind of idea of acceptance, but a certain acceptance that says there's something wrong in the relationship between humans and nature, and that gets framed as an ecological problem. But you know, in the in the 1970s, um, the National Front, not the uh, French one, but the British one, uh, claimed that uh, or complained to the Green Party, which is a kind of centre-left uh, UK party, that they weren't campaigning enough on the quote endangerment of white Britons, which they were like, this is the main ecological issue. This is the main um, kind of form that like ecology should take. It should be about racial defense. And so in some ways, it seems like the same kind of dynamics are playing out maybe slightly uh, in France with, with like green issues, quote unquote, being moved from this kind of terrain of fossil fuels onto a totally different terrain that because green politics is very broad, seems like it has something to do with environmentalism. Is that a fair like assessment? There's this kind of linkage that obscures the problem rather than denies it. I mean, I definitely agree that um, the, the core idea behind the Rassemblement National's ecological narrative is defending the white nation. And I mean, this is a common thing between green nationalism and climate denialism. We can see that both of them want to defend the white nation. And um, it is the, the ecology that they promote is an identitarian ecology. 
there's an ecology of population and Hervé Juvin says it himself that we need to defend um, uh, uh, biodiversity, but that also includes diversity of uh, humans. I mean, he doesn't say species, but human cultures. This is the new racist uh, uh, trick uh, to talk about cultures. And, um, and he says explicitly that it is more important, uh, that is uh, the, the fact that uh, the diversity of human cultures or endangered is actually more important than preserving the diversity uh, of animal species, for example. So this is put on the same level and even higher kind of, it is about defending the environment, but the environment is not seen as mother earth. This is like one planet where we all live on. It's the environment that is attached to a specific people that is living in this natural environment in creation mark. And uh, so it is very much this link that is trying to be defended. And um, this is linked to concepts such as ethno-differentialism, as we talked about in the book, uh, the, not, not, the, not a, some sort of left-wing, um, uh, idea that we need to defend that there are different cultures, different ways of seeing the world, and we should uh, uh, keep on preserving this, and that we shouldn't fall into some sort of uniformization, uh, or like this is worth being criticized. But um, the, the main idea is that cultures are incompatible with, it, with each other, uh, each other, and this is why uh, they need to be kept separate. Uh, as soon as there is a mix, then they will lose, lose the difference. And they, this is what they, they claim. Then we need to have this right to, to the difference. And it's also linked with theories, I mean, theories, again, <laughs> quotation marks, uh, of great replacement and the idea that Europe is being colonized and we need to protect this. And um, yeah, and this is what gives rise to, to quotations such as um, the best ally of ecology is the border, preserving this environment national territory. What, one of the arguments that we make in the book is that uh, when you scratch the surface of green nationalism, it's really just another form of denial of the climate crisis. Because even if it pays lip service to the uh, science of global warming uh, as a real phenomenon in, in the biosphere, it doesn't accept the evidence of what drives this problem, uh, but instead it tries to uh, blame immigrants uh, or overpopulation in the global south uh, or any other other kind of per perceived enemies of the white nation as the causes of global warming and just precisely by doing so it engages in a kind of secondary denial which is the the, the denial of uh, of of the social drivers of the problem which are of a completely different nature of course it's not the fact that immigrants cause cause uh, co2 emissions uh, so there, uh, this is uh, green nationalism of this kind is largely a derivative form of denial or a secondary form of denial. And it's very often uh, drawn back even into default denial, as in, uh, you know, all sorts of Freudian slips where far right actors who have committed themselves to green nationalism uh, start saying that, oh, in fact, global warming isn't such a big deal. The real problem is immigration and, or Islam or things like that. We've seen this in Finland. We've seen this in France and elsewhere. Now, what's going on in France right now is really crucial because just as you say, France is really the cradle of the contemporary far right in Europe. And uh, it has broken with much of the far right by taking up green nationalism uh, instead of classical hardcore denialism. And, and the, the current election campaign is central because if, uh, if Rassemblement National and Le Pen are successful, if she becomes president, this could potentially be a, a general breakthrough for the far right. Obviously, if, 
it would be if I mean, if the far right would would, would to rule France, that would be a, a, an incredibly, a, incredibly epical advance for the European far right. But it would also most likely signal, a, I think, a general shift in the European far right towards green nationalism. But it, it will also be interesting to see if the party and Le Pen manage to hold on to green nationalism or or to what extent they slip back into older default denial uh, modes of, of talking about those things. So we, we in the Zetkin Collective will try to uh, keep track of what's going on in France up to the presidential election and see how the ecological themes are playing out in the uh, in these campaigns because because it's such a such a central country right now. Yeah, I just want to say that uh, yeah, you're totally right. It, it's uh, a second form of denial, uh, like denial 2.0 sort of. But um, it is uh, just as much as it is denying the drivers, it is also denying the consequences and what needs to be done to counter this. And none of the proposals that are uh, that that they are proposing are um, like or they are just. Um, just never reaching the level of action that actually needs to be taken because we need international uh, cooperation and so on. And they are completely anti that because they think it's some sort of globalist conspiracy and opposing like this new um, uh, yeah, opposition between uh, not the left and right, but local and globalist instead. And this is where now the new, the two new camps are. In some ways, it is a denialism. I agree with that. But I also think there's another way in which it can just be framed as a kind of acceptance, but also a kind of a blasé acceptance. So, and, the, and in that sense, we can return from mitigation to adaptation and not adaptation as, you know, we uh, build like a better kind of um, flood defense systems and so on, but adaptation as in we securitize the whole of society such that the social problems which climate change entails never appear, right? So um, Bolsonaro has, uh, you know, famously kind of destroyed much of the Amazon and kind of allowed that to happen. Um, but at the same time, He's also made the paramilitary elements of the police much more powerful. Scott Morrison in Australia has um, expanded coal extraction, um, which will you know, uh, destroy parts of Australia, and at the same time has um, in increased the border regime. You get, um, to some extent, like Trump, who uh, obviously does you know, also denies climate change, but at the same time um, advocates for the intensification of the border regime there as well. And so in some sense, they are responding to climate change, but they responded to climate change not as a climactic phenomena driven by fossil fuels, but as a collection of social problems that the ruling class will have to suppress. So I feel like, yes, there is a denialism, but we shouldn't like stay on the terrain of saying, oh, they just don't believe it, or like this, something like this, but that it's in their, in their material interests. And in fact, given the, um, I think disaster capitalism thesis is very useful here, the Naomi Klein, um, because it shows the ways in which, even though we get this kind of um, eco-socialist problem, by James O'Connor, where you, um, capitalism de degrades its environment, things fall apart, the profit rate goes down, blah, 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 what's called the second contradiction of capitalism. Even if that happens in the long term, in the short term, you can always simply expand the degree of securitization of your society. And this is incredibly profitable. And so I wonder why it is that these kinds of questions, like military questions, security questions, don't play a larger role in the book, given that they play such a huge role in the imaginary of the far right, not just now, but in the future in, re in responding to climate change. Yeah, uh, well, I'm happy to accept that as a weakness of the book, uh, that there's not more of that. Um, and I, I agree with everything you're saying. Uh, I mean, I, th I think we, uh, I mean, we look at the far right 
in a sense, rather narrowly. So we're not looking at what the U.S. military, for instance, is doing to securitize uh, uh, climate climate politics in general. We're not looking at at, at Frontex and those uh, EU military institutions and what they're doing. Uh, but we're we're we spend we spend some time on uh, the far right as the most aggressive defender of borders, including, for instance, the case of Matteo Salvini when he was the Interior Ministry in in Italy. He uh, uh, repeatedly denied the existence of climate-induced migration uh, and scoffed at the notion of climate refugees while sending uh, uh, you know, uh, his armed patrols to, to stop and detain and send back uh, in a very spectacular fa- fashion of migrants trying to cross the Mediterranean. And uh, the, the far right, is, of course, has been doing the same, trying to fortify borders in, in Hungary and Poland and elsewhere. And this is something that we uh, spend quite a lot of time on describing as part of the, uh, I mean, as, as perhaps the, the essence of far right politics. Um, but we're looking at it on the level of what, what far right parties and presidents have done, not on, on, the, on the broader systematic structural level where you uh, uh, entirely correctly pinpoint this this uh, uh, tendency to manage the symptoms, uh, including symptoms of the climate crisis itself, in a very repressive uh, and oppressive fashion, uh, from yeah, from from regimes in, in Australia, in Europe, in the U.S. and and elsewhere. And uh, uh, that's, I mean, that's. Partly it's covered in in other books, but partly it's something that needs to be studied in much more detail. What our our specific contribution is perhaps to try to uh, narrow down the role of the organized far right in those uh, political struggles. So you've said a couple of times in the interview and from reading the book that the the kind of focus of study is particularly Europe, 13 countries in Europe and uh, Brazil and the USA. And I wondered how you, how we can start to expand this kind of view out, particularly incorporating China, which is obviously the number one carbon emitter in the world, is not obviously not far right in any kind of European sense, because it's got its own context of colonialism and revolution and everything like that. Um, And yet it's still an authoritarian uh, mode of doing environmentalism. So how do we bring in these countries like China and indeed India into this conversation, um, and how do they? How can we relate them to to what you're talking about in the book? Well, I, I should say to begin with that we're we're trying now with the Zetkin Collective to do more research on cases that are not in the book, and the one that seems to be first in line is Australia. Australia being the world's largest exporter of coal and gas. And with a quite significant far right, I mean the 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 government is, I guess, center right uh, or mainstream right, but there is a quite vibrant far right scene in that country that engages in uh, quite a lot of explicit climate denial, even as the wildfires burn or the, or, I don't know, the New South Wales underwater and and all these things. Uh, so that's that case seems quite close to our general thematic uh, interest in the book. India, likewise, because India has a far right government. Uh, so it, that that's really a major omission of the book that we're we're not studying 
Hindutva nationalism and its relation to, to fossil fuel technologies and to, to the climate problem. Um, China is, is perhaps uh, very different because Chinese politics uh, is its own universe, uh, I guess. Um, and uh, I, I'm not 100% sure that the kind of uh, interpretive, you know, the, the kind of interpretations and the theoretical keys that we use in this book would be very useful for the study of China. Uh, or, I mean, authoritarianism in general isn't really what we focus on in the book. Uh, so I think that scholars or, or yeah, activist scholars who know about China would need to come up with, with analysis of, of these things uh, and how they work in China. And I'm certainly not one of those people. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm not sure that the Zetkin Collective will try to branch out into the, the study of China, which uh, I mean, uh, that's that's a that's an omission, that's a gap. But but we can only do so much. Uh, we have another anthology. I should say that we we organized a conference uh, back in late uh, 2019 called Political Ecologies of the Far Right, that is now being turned into uh, collect, uh, an edited volume. And there we have much more global perspectives. There's New Zealand there with, the, with eco-fascism as represented in the Christchurch killer. There's Boko Haram uh, in Nigeria uh, as largely a symptom of the climate crisis. Um, there, there are contributions on the far right in India. So uh, yeah, we're, we're trying to uh, add to, to the picture that is, added, that is in the book, but uh, I'm not sure about China, to be honest. Yeah, I was just, sorry, I was just thinking specifically with uh, China and kind of um, racist, like xenophobic attitudes in Europe and how they could be utilized by the far right. Mm -hmm. um, with the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen this kind of rise of anti-Asian anti kind of violence and harassment and um but i think you make the point in the book that it doesn't really have the same purchase as like islamophobia does in within kind of european far-right kind of thinking mm. no but what's what's actually interesting to me at least is the intensity of state islamophobia in china and the the uh, extraordinary uh, oppression uh, that the Uyghur people is subjected to. And uh, in that sense, you can certainly see correspondence between, I mean, between Chinese Islamophobia, Indian Islamophobia, and uh, uh, yeah, Burmese Islamophobia, uh, and uh, what we have in Europe. So uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, this, is, this is perhaps not a response to, to your, your question or your comment. But uh, I mean, it would be interesting to see how the politics of coal play out in relation to the Uyghurs in, in, in inner China, uh, inner Mongolia and, and Xinjiang, where actually a lot of the coal extraction is happening. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, so maybe, maybe some of these lenses are useful for studying China as well. I don't know. I think one of the kind of maybe a country that's a bit closer uh, might be Israel. Right, which is engaged in quite a thoroughgoing greenwashing of the um, occupation of Palestine. Right, um, there is a uh, a lot of discussion about the way in which like Israel is kind of um, kind of making the desert bloom. Right, this is part of kind of the national uh, myth. And uh, it would, before it was just this kind of desert where Palestinians were just kind of I don't know, well, they didn't exist apparently, but um, you know they're, they're they're making this kind of desert bloom. And so I wonder where, where you think Israel fits within this. It seems actually much closer in some ways to the French case. 
Well, yeah, that's a wonderful question. And uh, uh, Palestine is very close to my heart. So uh, uh, I, 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 I think you're right. And uh, yeah, I mean, there is, there is, uh, well, I'd be, I'd be extremely interested in knowing about the far right in Israel and if it has a, a position on climate, if it has a position on, on the current ecological crisis, apart from engaging in this old settler colonial ideology of making the desert bloom. So, ha, I mean, has far right Zionism updated its, its green credentials in any sense uh, to, to current conditions, or is it still stuck in the sort of 1948 uh, mode of, uh, uh, of where, where we're taking the wilderness and, uh, and making it bloom? Uh, I don't know. I haven't followed these things, uh, but it's, it's certainly worth looking into. I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure that climate is a political issue in the state of Israel, uh, but I, 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 I'm not. I'm, I haven't followed Israeli politics in that sense to be able to 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 know. But it's certainly certainly yeah, absolutely worth looking into. Definitely. And yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I have one final question, which is about uh, neoconservatism, which seems, I guess, like quite a long way away from the contemporary far right, I think. Um, although definitely when the George W. Bush presidency was around, people regarded it as um, a far right movement. I mean, neoconservatism was regarded as part of the far right. Um, and there's been a kind of Trump-induced amnesia about um, the Bush presidency, I think, more generally, and about how unbelievably destructive it was, not just to the rights of Americans, but globally, how many wars it fought, how many people it murdered, basically. Right? You know, it's astonishing that we've kind of fixated on, like, uh, or at least American liberals have fixated on this like particularly annoying uh, man at the expense of uh, George Bush, who was equally denialist. Mm-hmm. I mean, so there's this astonishing point, and this, this goes back to the kind of point I was making about securitization earlier. There's this astonishing point in the immediate aftermath of Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, just like plausibly climate change induced um, but like obviously it's a massive storm in general and obviously um to do with the governance of racialized people in new orleans and so on and he says he goes on tv and he says you shouldn't think about this as if it was a natural disaster think about if it had been a nuclear attack and so there's this kind of sense in which like there's this sublation of uh natural disaster into the security framework of the u.s state and i wonder if maybe part of the another history we can see for this neoconservative wing of the far right is much more about the organization on a kind of imperial scale of the transition to renewable energy. I'm thinking particularly about, for example, Bolivia, right? Bolivia has huge lithium mines, just had a coup. That coup is not unrelated to the lithium mines. In fact, it's not unrelated to the exploitation of gas in, in Morales and so on. But I think that there, there, there are possibly other ways in which we might think about the far right, not in its kind of conspicuous far right parties, Rosanna Marshall and so on, but as a kind of an organizing principle for racial capitalism that might be more subtle, more nuanced, and yet actually in the long term just as dangerous. And it might look a lot more like George Bush than Donald Trump. Does that seem like a reasonable kind of like hypothesis i think it is reasonable because i mean figures like putin or 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 erdogan would fit into that mold perfectly they are the neoconservatives of their their countries and uh, i mean russia really is a case also of you know uh, all out boosting fossil fuel production and engaging in in climate denial and climate denial being quite extensive as i understand quite prevalent in russia so yeah, I, I think you 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 you're absolutely you're spot on, and uh, and that case could be made that a kind of 
uh, neoconservative far right that that doesn't necessarily go as far as the the Bolsonaro Trump in insanity is <laughs> Uh, the face of contemporary late capitalism uh, in its in its uh, business as usual form. Uh, I mean, that's this is also, I, in a sense, the trend of European politics, where you see this convergence, this confluence between the far right and conservatives happening in country after country after country, including Sweden, where I where I live, where we most likely after the next election uh, will uh, be ruled by an alliance between the Christian Democrats, the classical bourgeois right-wing conservative party and the post-neo-Nazis in the Sweden Democrats, which are the, I mean, they are the third largest party in, in the country, sometimes the second in the polls. Uh, so yeah, this is this seems to be something like a global trend. Yeah. It's also the most plausible scenario in Britain, I think, where like, yeah. as I said before, we, we uh, the conservatives are very good at absorbing uh, the far right. Um, and therefore like this kind of dominance, this kind of governance of the disaster of, of capitalism, of, of climate change, sorry. I mean, capitalism is also another kind of disaster, but the disaster of uh, climate change, right? Like, um, you know, uh, this kind of governance might be more, kind of more compelling. Sorry, Lise. Yeah, I just want to add quickly, I mean, uh, uh, on uh, what's happening in France, <laughs> uh, but um, I just want to say that indeed, sometimes I even ask myself, uh, I mean, I kind of, I'm not seriously asking this to myself, but I'm also just as scared of uh, Macron's liberal policies and climate inaction linked with rising Islamophobia from the state, rising sec securitization and the uh, control and like more power given to the police and the uh, power narratives being spread out into the police and having um, <laughs> editorials or tribunes in um, in magazines and newspaper from uh, far right military militaries and uh, calling for like some sort of coup and saying that we are uh, yeah t uh, testifying um, witnessing sorry the um, uh, great replacement the French society and uh, that it's all going to chaos and that we need order and so on and and of course this is yeah quite connected as well and this is giving a the, the the red carpet I don't even know if it's a, a English um, English um, uh, expression as well but uh, so it, it's not that it's a completely uh, strict division between the consequences of will, what will happen with green capitalism and high high Islamophobia with Macron and what would happen with Marine Le Pen so um, yeah I think it's quite scary on both sides unfortunately. I wanted to ask about that that French letter about the from the army. What the fuck? Yeah, that's what my the question. Fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, what? That's my answer. What the fuck? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's quite crazy. I mean, if if only it had been just one letter, because there was no new one. I don't know if you saw. Um, okay. And uh, from like ac active militaries. I don't know what's the, the English. Uh, word um yeah and i mean we've had like uh, just a few weeks ago and a week ago the the demonstration in paris uh, of the policemen uh, officially it was some sort of uh, um like reunion to to say to not celebrate but to uh, after the death of the the, the police uh, men and women uh, to yeah do some sort of gathering for, for their death, but it happened to be, of course, a gathering for uh, to put the police against the justice and to say that uh, the police needs more forces and more power and need to have a 
to overlook what's happening on, uh, in, in the justice side. And uh, if only it had been only policemen there, but no, it was also there was also um, potential presidential candidates um, from the left, uh, from the color, from the, the Greens, and yeah, so it's it's quite scary uh, the support of the police and with the uh, minister of the interior also there. So, yeah, so I think it's quite uh, it's quite crazy, and I think what the fuck is uh, pretty much a good summary. <laughs> the situation <laughs> this i guess this is what we refer to in the book as fascization the, the fascist tendencies in our societies at large uh, and uh, sweden again i mean sweden is a much more obviously insignificant country than than uh, than france but sweden is going pathological as well in this in, in this sense that where you know the, all of swedish politics is about the evils caused by immigration, by non-white people, being the, the, the cause of every imaginable trouble in, in Swedish society, from crime to unemployment to poor results in school. Uh, and uh, yeah, absolutely everything can be attributed to, to, to immigrants. And this, this is where the far right is no longer a marginal phenomenon. It's no longer in the uh, fringe phenomenon. It's, it's, it's in the mainstream. Something we... We, we've been thinking about on the show and in our writing is what what we can do about this general situation um and how we as the left or the radical left can start to be how we can continue to be challenging this this intersection of, and, and what's happening um do is it a case of it feels like at the moment there's like a lot of left movements are quite siloed off from each other we have the environmental movement we have the migrant solidarity movement we have anti-fascist movements and how how can we, I mean, I, I can't really see anything other than bringing these things together and trying to address things together. Um, but I just, I'm, I'm a bit unclear about how we go about doing that, how we make the environmental, struggle for environmental justice part of migrant solidarity, part of anti-fascism. Yeah, I'm, I can just uh, say a few things, but uh, well, of course, and this is the argument that we make is that the environmental movement has to, to be anti-fascist and anti-racist and to realize that fighting for climate justice is inherently anti-racist. So uh, it's not even that we have to make bridges, it's there already. Um, I also want to say that I, I personally get scared and I haven't uh, really spoken about that here, but about uh, such movements that are uh, well, now, uh, even the Rassemblement National is talking about localism and the local and so on, and like um, uh, consuming local and producing local. But um, like, like this, uh, they are increasingly using terms that usually belong to the left wing uh, sphere, like such as degrowth and so on, and criticizing capitalism on, for different reasons and marketization. And I'm just, uh, I, I just feel like the left uh, needs to reappropriate these terms and make make it clear what it is not about and what it is about and talk about an open local and not being rooted um, and maybe as the far right says but being anchored <laughs> i don't know if that's the because an anchor can be moved for example and uh yeah having this like world vision for ecology rather than just um that the local is part of this world ecology i'm talking about decolon i'm thinking about decolonial ecology um but um, I also think that ecology as and environmental concerns and environmental action also needs to be more popularized and maybe 
that we need to give space to um, anti-racist um, movement that are also talking about ecology and that it shouldn't be only white people bringing about this topic because yeah and, and give more space to to other movements that are maybe also less yeah less white Andreas, did you have anything to add to that? No, no, I, I mean, uh, no, I, 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 of course, agree completely with Lise. And I think uh, uh, what, what we're trying to do with the book is to, uh, uh, well, one of the purposes of the book really is to contribute to more vigilance in the climate movement when it comes to green nationalism, to, to you know, uh, affirm uh, the rejection of any kind of temptation of, of that kind of, of discourse. Um, and also uh, it, it's an attempt to try to, you know, tell the climate movement that it, it needs to be more aware of the politics of race. And that that's been a real, uh, I mean, problem for the climate movement. I mean, in the UK with XR in 2019, but in, but in, in 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 Europe in general, that the climate movement has been so oblivious to the politics of race, and uh, that has to change. Now, uh, the the contribution that the climate movement can make to the struggle against the far right, I think, is that when the climate crisis intensifies, as it inevitably will we can say that the far right does not have any solution. It does not have any politics that can uh, take us out of or even ameliorate the climate crisis because the only politics that the far right has is about bashing non-white people and that won't help us in any way to uh, get through this crisis. Uh, that, that argument should have purchased, but of course it, it presumes, it presupposes that people are reasonably rational, which isn't always the case. And certainly not in our part of the world, uh, but but it should be possible to make the argument that the far right is completely useless for dealing with the climate crisis, which I fundamentally think it is. I of course agree with you, and I, I just want to second what both of you said about about that. I think that's really important. Yes, go on, Lise. Go, go yeah, on, I just go want on. to <laughs> add, add something else. Um, so yes, of course, say that the far right doesn't have any answer, but also. Uh, that there, that so to create, I mean, it's there with the climate movement also, but on, on the political scene to actually have a left that is taking up these issues and having like a proper anti-capitalist agenda and tackling this like marketization of bodies, for example. I'm just thinking about that, um, not, well, not only as a woman, but I just feel like some of the far right groups are taking up issues that are not talked about, such as contraception and so on. And, uh, but just, I'm obviously in no way against contraception, but just reflecting on how um, women bodies are oppressed through capitalism and so on. And, uh, and I think it's important not to leave these debates to the far right as well. And to say, not say completely disregard them, but also yeah, offer an alternative to this. Uh, sometimes um, necessary questioning of what's going on. So. I think that relates very directly to the climate crisis as well, right? Because one of the major parts of the far right understanding of climate is it's caused overpopulation, which we didn't get to as a, a discussion, but I think yeah. it's uh, absolutely central. Um, fantastic. Thank you so much to Lise Benoit and Andreas Malm. Uh, this has been 12 Horse for What? Um, go and get White Skin Black Fuel out now from Verso. Uh, and I'll see you very soon. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you, comrades, for amazing work. 12 Rules. Yeah,